0: Three and four year olds in our kindergarten through fifth graders, you are welcome to attend children's church at this time, and you can head out to the back where your leaders are waiting to meet you. It's good to see you all this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor here. I'm excited to dive into God's Word with you this morning. If you've got your Bible, would you open to Genesis chapter 3, please? It is still really overwhelming. To hear you all sing together. Man, it's a lot. I'm grateful for it. All right, shape up, Busby. Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> Thanks for that moment of indulgence. Uh, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open the whole time. Take a few notes this morning as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, shortly after World War I, a German engineer invented something called the Enigma machine. You're probably familiar with it, familiar with this story. There was a popular movie just a few years ago that came out about it. The machine resembled a typewriter uh, and it was used by Germany to send encrypted messages. The machine was incredibly complex. Uh, The way it was arranged, it offered 103 sextillion possible settings to choose from and the Germans thought that this made their machine unbreakable. Uh, But the Polish people had some brilliant minds working for them, and they broke the Enigma as early as 1932. But in 1939, with war on the horizon, Germany increased the complexity of the Enigma machine, and so the Poles turned to the Brits to ask for help in cracking the Enigma. Uh, And so a team, a special team of really brilliant mathematicians led by a man named Alan Turing were able to break the enigma in January 1940. And over the course of the next five years of the war, uh, the Allies were able to intercept countless German messages. And that information was vital in their success uh, in the war. And although the war didn't end until 1945, it's believed that the breaking of the enigma shortened the war by a number of years. It shows us that knowing the plans and tactics of your enemy gives you a wartime advantage. And as a follower of Jesus, you are in a daily battle with your own personal sin. It's an odd sort of battle. It's odd because the outcome is already decided. Christ's victory is certain. Satan's defeat is sure. Uh, However, the battle is still ongoing. And the Bible tells us that Satan is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so it's difficult for us to overstate the damage that is capable whenever the Christian gives their life over to sin. Sin causes deep, deep damage. It can destroy relationships, it can end marriages, it can produce lifelong wounds in yourself and in others, it can fracture your relationship with God, it can devour you. So wouldn't it be helpful If you had spy-like knowledge of Satan's tactics, what if you could crack the code, so to speak, on the temptation that leads to sin? Well, that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis 3 serves two purposes for the reader. First of all, it describes the origin of sin. That's helpful to know where sin comes from. But the greater purpose of Genesis chapter 3 is to equip God's people to combat temptation and to turn away from sin. Remember the original audience of this document. Moses wrote it for the Hebrew people right after their exit from Egypt and slavery. And so the Hebrew people are somewhere between Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the border of the Promised Land when they read for the first time how the tempter works. And again, the reading of this was not just so they would know where sin comes from. It's so that they would handle the Word of God right. And in their wandering until they get to the Promised Land, they would take every step with God and in obedience to Him. So they're helped by Genesis 3 and this exposure of the tempter's tactics Genesis 3 does the same thing for us that it did for them it's an expose of the tactics of a defeated enemy and so my goal today in preaching this passage is to strengthen you in your personal battle against sin i want to do that by exposing three ways Satan uses temptation to lure us into sin so i want you to follow along with me as i read I'm going to start reading in the last verse of chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 25, and I'll read through chapter 3, verse 7. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit, fruit from the trees in the garden but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die no you will not die the serpent said to the woman in fact God knows that when you eat it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's brutal. Everything changes here. Everything changes forever from this moment on. But this passage is not a place for you and I to come and grieve the fall of mankind. It is a place for you and I to be empowered in our personal battles against sin. There are three ways that Satan uses temptation to lure us into sin. I want to show you those three ways from the passage. The first is this temptation warps the word of God. Here's how he uses temptation to get you to sin. He warps the word of God to you. So the serpent shows up in the story, and you immediately begin to ask questions like this. Who is this serpent? Is this the devil? It has to be the devil. Where did he come from? Why is he speaking? Why doesn't Eve flip out? But the story is not concerned with those questions. The story is concerned with the serpent's words, and the serpent's words warp the words of God. In verse 1, he begins by misquoting God in the form of an accusatory question. He asks Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, of course God didn't say that. We know what God said. We have a transcript of God's words in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So we know precisely what God has said and commanded of Adam and Eve. God did not say you can't eat from any tree of the garden. But look, the tempter knows how to play the game. He's clever. He's sly. And he knows God's word. Didn't we just see that when Pastor Mike read Matthew chapter 4 to us? He knows the word of God. And so he asks this fuzzy question. It's a confusing question. It's not an outright denial of God's command. He doesn't just enter the scene and say, God's bad, and I'm good, and you should do what I say. He just comes in and asks a gentle question. It's confusing. There's, any, there's a, a number of possible different ways to answer that question, but his goal with the opening question was to engage Eve in discussion about the commandment and mission accomplished. Eve replied to the serpent, and it's clear that either she doesn't remember God's command with specificity, or she deliberately gets it wrong she makes three errors in her recalling of god's command the first error she makes is this she minimized the provision of the lord so the lord said this he said you are free to eat from any tree in the garden or your translation of the bible might say you may eat freely or you may surely eat but when eve speaks back to the serpent she looks at the trees and she says we may eat Now, you may say, it's just one little word, but there is an emphasis in what God has permitted that Eve downplays as she recalls God's command. God said, all of this is yours. Eve replies, we can eat from these. She downplays the provision of God. Second error Eve makes is she adds to God's command. Right. God's command, or Eve replies to the serpent. She says about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it. Did God say, don't touch the tree? Well, no, he did not say that. You look over at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He just said, don't eat from it. Now, you might say this. You might say, well, hey, good for Eve for taking the word of the Lord so serious that she would add layers of protection. Don't just... Don't eat it, but don't look at it. Don't touch it. Don't go around it. Look at Eve. She takes sin so serious, she's adding rules. But you're wrong to assume that. Anytime man made rules are added on top of the Word of God, we show how much we hate the Word of God. We show how much we, or how little we think of the Word of God. We're saying God's Word is not sufficient as we have it, and so we have to add rules to it. In order to bolster it up and to make it accomplish what we think it would accomplish. This is the birth of legalistic fundamentalism right here in Genesis chapter 3. It is insidious. It is nasty. It is evil. Adding man-made rules to the clearly given word of God. It's a profound error. Eve's third error is she weakens the penalty of sin. Eve told the serpent that if they ate of the tree, they would die But when God gave this warning, he added an emphasis to it. God said if they ate, they would certainly die, or they would surely die. There's this there's this compassionate, intense warning from God. Not like this scary warning, but listen, I love you so much, you've got to know this. If you eat that fruit, you will surely die. Eve just says, Yeah, we'll die. So as Eve changes the precise wording of God's command, she's drawn closer and closer to sin. And that's going to be true for us as well. We are often tempted to sin by warping God's word. And it may not be an outright denial of God's word, but it's a twisting of what God has said exactly. Let me give you an example. It's uh, from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've been in conversations with people, with other Christians, and just in sort of a lighthearted way, um, that's a joke, not a joke. They'll say, oh, I do pray for my enemies. I pray for their destruction. That sort of thing. But is that what Jesus meant when he said pray? He doesn't care the content of your prayer as long as you're just praying. Is that it? So if you pray venom and evil and brimstone on your enemy hey at least you're praying you check the box is that what it's a warping of the word of god if i if i'm going to love my enemy i'm going to pray for them in a way that's consistent with the gospel of jesus christ but we warp the word of god in order to justify our sinful attitudes how do we get to the point where we will warp god's word in this way here's how we set it aside we don't read We don't listen. We don't hear the voice of Jesus, and therefore we entertain other voices. We give the real estate in our mind to the tempter. Our problem is not merely just ignorance of God's word. Our problem is our negligence of God's word, and it causes his voice to grow quieter and quieter so that we no longer follow him into the light and out of the darkness. Instead, we go where our appetites and our indulgences take us. We wade deeper and deeper into destruction, and we call it freedom. Ultimately, we come to the place where we see the voice of God as an offense to us rather than a rescue for us. We hate the voice that calls us out of darkness. We despise the voice that over and over speaks love. We silence the word, we warp the word, we despise the word, and we welcome our destroyer. It's one of Satan's favorite tactics to cause us to doubt the word of God, to warp it in our minds. There's a second way Satan uses temptation to lead us into sin, and the second way is this, temptation questions the character of God. He gets us to warp God's word in our mind, and then he gets us to question the very character of God. So verses 4 and 5 are the serpent's last speaking parts in this story. And here the serpent directly denies the truthfulness of what God said. So in verse 4, he says, no, you will not die. There's no punishment for sin. He denies the consequences of disobedience. He lies. It's his oldest tactic. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44 about Satan? He said, He's a liar and the father of all lies. See, the Bible is clear that no one gets away with sin. Disobedience always brings death, always. But the serpent not only denies the word of God, he also calls into question the integrity of God in order to justify Eve's sin and Adam's sin. Look in verse 5. He says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So here he says God's motivation in giving this law was not to bless and protect Adam and Eve, but rather he's motivated by jealousy. And a desire to keep Adam and Eve from becoming all that they can be. If they were to eat this fruit, they will have certain knowledge they don't have at the moment. They will, in effect, become like God according to the serpent. They will become gods. So he tempts Eve by convincing her that God's goodness is a charade. And that he's not there to protect and love and bless them. He is there to hold them back. So the serpent paints God as petty deceptive, untrustworthy, and Eve entertains this as a possibility. I mean, it's a sinister tactic, pure evil, to try and get you to question the goodness of God. And sometimes Satan does it in such a really unique and effective way. He will take the failures of the church at large to bolster this doubt in the minds of people who are far from God, who who are hurting. So he will highlight the church's hypocrisies, infighting, judgmental attitudes, our fallenness, all as a reflection of God. He'll whisper in their ears, if that's what God's people are like, what must God be like? So we need to pause here and do a little bit of introspection. Is there a situation in your life this morning in which you are doubting the goodness of God? Is there some grief that has led to hurt? Is there some disappointment you're carrying, some sickness? Satan will always use your trials as a platform to accuse God. He hides in the shadows and he'll say things like, well, if God is good, why is this happening to you? Aren't you his child? Is this how a father treats a child? Isn't God all powerful so, so he can change this if he wants, but he chooses not to? What's, what's wrong with him? Are you carrying any of those doubts this morning with you? Are you facing any situation in which you are questioning the goodness of God? I want to lay bare for you right now that this is Satan's temptation. He wants to lead you to not just doubt God, but to turn away from God, he wants to fracture your faith. And Christian, he will use any pressure point he can to get you to be suspicious of God, to think that he is against you and not for you. So what's the situation? What's the lie? Let's not entertain any more these doubts about God's goodness from a tempter who wants to destroy us. How does Satan use temptation? He warps the word of God. He questions God's goodness, makes us question God's character. Third, temptation appeals to our desires. So now the serpent has denied God's instruction. He has marred God's character. He slinks back, and he lets Eve lead the scene. And so Eve turns her eyes to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and suddenly she likes what she sees verse 6 tells us the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom so eve sees the physical appeal of the tree it was good for food and she sees the emotional appeal of the tree it's delightful to look at and eve sees the spiritual appeal of the tree it's desirable for obtaining wisdom now the description of these three attributes, essentially what Eve is looking at is food and beauty and knowledge. These three things that she sees and desires have a parallel in 1 John where John describes the sin that consumes the world. It is the lust of the flesh, it's food, it's lust of the eyes, beauty, it's the pride of life, the knowledge that Eve desires. She's enticed by these things. Now look, these things are not in and of themselves sinful and bad. Food is not sinful inherently. Beauty is not sinful. Knowledge not sinful. These are natural gifts from God for us to enjoy. But God gives us gracious boundaries within which to enjoy His natural gifts. And so when we take them and we rip them out of the guidelines of God, the boundaries of God, they become destroyers to us. We don't enjoy them in the blessing that he has intended for us to enjoy them in. They destroy us. And so when we make decisions based on what we desire over what God desires, we find ourselves in the same place as Eve. Many times you'll find that what you want and what God wants for you are actually the same thing. But when we insist on having that good thing outside of God's boundaries, then we turn it into sin, we turn it into a destroyer. There are good things we should enjoy and God wants us to enjoy in our lives. success in some measure, joy, uh, relationships, love, these are good things from God, but we are so capable of turning them into idols, into mutilating them outside of the boundaries that God has given, and using them to our own self-destruction. So Eve has taken in the tree. And in the story, the verbs now come rapid fire. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. One right after the other. Verse 6 tells us that Adam was with her. That could mean that he's present for the entire encounter. He sees the whole discussion, he sees the whole thing unfold in front of him. It could mean he was not present, but now he is at this moment in the story. The story doesn't clarify for us, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Here's what we see. Adam doesn't need the same type of deception Eve needed. He just shows up and eats. consequences are immediate. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The story opened with Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. The story closes with them naked and ashamed. Their holiness is gone their purity is gone. Now they are consumed by shame and guilt and the image of God has been marred and now it has to be covered. Satan will always tempt us with our desires, with natural things God has given for our good and he will blind us to the consequences and the results are always disastrous. So how does Satan use temptation what does genesis 3 show us this morning well he tempts us to warp the word of god to question the goodness of god and he appeals to our desires his tactics are not new they are as old as the garden of eden but they are horrifically effective for the christian who is not aware and on guard So now that you know his tactics, you've got some secret knowledge, you've got some spy-level intel on the enemy. And you can look at your life through the lens of Genesis chapter 3 and say, okay, I see where he's twisting God's word, where he's appealing to my desires, where I'm questioning the goodness, the character of God. But now that you know his tactics, what you need is a counterstrike. When your enemy is vulnerable and exposed, it's time to strike. And so how do you do that in this battle with your sin? Let me give you a very quick two-part strategy. First of all, you're going to run to Jesus. You have in Christ your victory over sin and over the tempter. By your faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again, there you have every strength you need to overcome, every temptation, and to find freedom from every sin that ensnares you. The call here is not to you to just buckle up and get tough and grit your teeth and do the good thing. It is for you to rely on Jesus Christ and be successful in the strength he provides through his death and resurrection on the cross. It's very possible that upon reading Genesis chapter 3, what you realize is not the sin that's on the horizon, but the sin that you are mired in even now. Adam and Eve had their eyes opened in this story. Maybe your eyes are opened this morning as well to sin that you're battling and you might be losing to all the more reason to run to Jesus Christ. He is a gracious Savior. He loves you so much. You have been trying to hide it from him. You've pulled away. His voice has grown quiet. You need to hear the voice of Jesus calling you to him again so that he can once again forgive you. You come to him in confession and repentance, and he cleans you and restores you. And that's what today might be for you is a fresh start once again and a new commitment to walk with Jesus as you battle your sin. Brothers and sisters, you gotta to run to Jesus this morning. When we see sin enter the scene and we recognize it in our own lives, Christ is our rescue. But the second part of this strategy is this, I want you to spin the temptation. We're gonna to run to Jesus and then as we engage with our personal sin, we're going to spin the temptation. Here's what I mean. I want you to notice that the things Satan attacks in temptation are the very ways you battle sin in your life. He wants you to, uh, to warp the word of God. And so instead, you're going to spin the temptation. You're going to keep the word of God. You're going to hear the voice of Jesus. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your word is a lamp lamp for my feet a light to my path so you're going to get the word of god in you do you want to battle sin in your life successfully brothers read the word daily sisters get the bible in you consume it like you breathe put it in you in any possible way by hearing it by reading it by meditating on it by praying it by memorizing it get the word of god in you again didn't we see Jesus use the Word of God in Matthew chapter 4 just a few moments ago as he battles the tempter as he turns him away every time Satan tempted Jesus responded with Scripture get the Word of God in you keep it in you Satan questions God's goodness so you're gonna trust God's goodness when the accuser begins to speak lies about your God you can speak to him, 1 John three sixteen. Look, this is how I know he loves me. He laid down his life for me. No greater love is there than this right here, that he gave his life for me. And so no matter the trial, no matter the accusation, no matter the others he puts in your ear to try and get you to question God's goodness, his presence, his power, his love, you're gonna trust him. Because you have this revelation. You've got this understanding of who he is and what he's done for you. And then finally, when Satan appeals to your desires, you're going to desire God above all else. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so then you'll begin to feed your desire for God with the things of God. And you will starve the desires of your flesh that would otherwise destroy you. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Don't offer any part of your body as a weapon for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Do you understand the magnitude of the holy arsenal that is at your disposal to fight your sin? You are not weak in Jesus Christ. The enemy is utterly defeated, once and for all. And his tactics are known and visible, and they are weak when you belong to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you're not meant to live mired in this sin, but to know the freedom that we have through the power of Jesus. This story tells us that Adam and Eve took and ate. In Genesis chapter three, Take and eat are verbs of destruction. It would take a long time, but ultimately, in Jesus, take and eat become verbs of salvation. And so I invite you today, brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you don't know Jesus Christ, as your savior if you're not a follower of Jesus I want to I talk to you for just a moment this story that we've read today is, is not about someone else we're not just reading about historical people this story is about us it's about you all of us are guilty of sin we try our best to downplay it by comparing ourselves to someone worse than us or we might plead our good intentions or We might claim our goodness according to the way our culture defines goodness today, but it's no use. The Bible tells us that we're all dead in our sin. Everything you thought was an argument in your favor actually solidifies your guilt before God. That's really bad news. But there's good news, and the good news is this. There's an answer for your sin and your guilt and your shame that answer is in jesus christ he is god in the flesh he's fully god fully man that's why he's the big deal and he is the perfect sacrifice that god the father provides to pay for your sin you might remember earlier in the sermon i mentioned that disobedience towards god is always punishable by death always this is how that disobedience is paid for Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. He's the perfect sinless son of God, but on the cross he takes the full wrath of God for every ounce of disobedience we've committed against him. So he died in your place, and three days later he rose from the dead. And his promise to you is that if you will turn from your sin, turn from your self-righteousness, and you will trust in him, He will save you. He'll forgive you. He removes your guilt and shame in full. Apart from Jesus, how do you live with your guilt and shame? How do you carry that burden? You're not meant to. God loves you so much. He gave his son to die in your place. And he invites you today to come, to trust, to be reborn by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will turn your life to Jesus and trust in him, you will be covered by his love forever. Let's pray together. Father, this passage is a place where we could come to grieve and to lament and to be sad about the way things are. That's indeed proper. But God, help us to see Genesis 3 through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to see what uh, what power there is for your children who walk with you and trust in you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here today who are battling sin, for those who are losing that battle. Uh, we're so good at playing the part in our secret lives. We're just wracked with darkness and death and sin, but we can still come and sing the song and shake hands and smile and Go to a business meeting. Do all those things that we do. But God, you know our hearts and I'm grateful for that. And so God, I pray this morning that you would bring conviction that would lead us away from sin. That we would run to you for times of refreshing. Lord God, don't let any lie keep us from confession and repentance that brings freedom from sin. And for those mired especially in habitual sin, in ongoing sin, God, give them strength and hope again as they lean on Jesus Christ. And Father, for our friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, I I pray today that they would come alive by hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love you have shown to us through giving your Son to die for our sins. Thank you for the love that holds us and carries us. Thank you that... Every sin, every sin is forgiven at the cross. So God, bring them to you today. Open their eyes, let them believe and have new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.